0: Okay, uh, let's turn to uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, uh, just to review a little a promise from the Word as we introduce the lesson tonight. Um, just again going back to the faith rest drill of looking to a promise of Scripture and then developing a rationale around that promise and then resting in it. This really isn't a promise so much as it's a directive uh, to utilize the faith rest uh, drill. And in Colossians 2.6, it says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And it's instructive to note that if you're not clear in the gospel as to how you receive Christ Jesus, then you cannot be clear in how to walk with him. And uh, that's a rather sobering thought, because in our time we have the gospel itself being uh, distorted in various ways. Um, It's it's looked upon sometimes as a, a psychological thing, inviting Jesus into your heart and your life will change, that sort of thing. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, do you trust in Jesus Christ's work on the cross, period. And when anything else is added to that, Uh, then things get confused. So, we want to be clear in our Gospel that we receive Christ Jesus by faith. It's not by faith and vowing to do something. It's not doing this or doing that. It's not participating in religious rituals and a hundred other things that usually get added into the Gospel. The Gospel is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Nothing else. And so, when it comes in Colossians 2.6, we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him means walk by faith. So, in a nutshell, uh, Colossians 2.6 is a very potent verse that links sanctification with the gospel. So it's a a handy one to think about. Father, we thank you for our time tonight, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to the great things of history that you have done, and that we would be appreciative of the hand of your sovereign will as it executes your uh, your plan down through the quarters of time, and that we can look upon the grandeur of your plan of salvation, and we can rest and find our peace in it, rather than in some gimmick of man, some human work, some human merit. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. It's been a while since we. Uh, Uh, we're here so I want to again just kind of review a little bit where we've been and uh, we can't review enough the plan of God so I wanted to um, get a running start on where we are Uh, I still haven't developed the slide that I want to develop for for this uh, series but you remember we've gone through this one a number of times and we've looked at the uh, great events of history and we've associated the great doctrinal truths with each one of those events. And it's really good to be able to state those major doctrines. Every one of those major doctrines, not some fine theologian's uh, hobby horse. These are just the main elements of the Christian faith and to have your imagination powered by memories of those historic events is is very, very useful to do. So when we are trying to define God, man, and nature, and the difference between them, the two events to think about are creation and the covenant, because in the Noahic covenant, God controls all history. See, God can't make a promise that there won't be a flood If he can't control every geophysical force in the universe. Let's review that again. If God promises that the geophysical environment of the earth will automatically be of a certain kind, and that's what the promise of no more flooding is, then that must mean that he's also saying that there can't be any asteroid that's going to come near the earth, to build a gravity wave that's going to take the oceans across the continents and that sort of thing. So, implied in the Noahic Covenant is total sovereign control throughout the the geophysical universe. So that's why we we go back to these events. Here, the creation event and uh, the covenant event. Then we uh, have looked upon the flood as a picture of judgment salvation. And uh, we're going to get into judgment and salvation um, in, these, in this series. And then, of course, the fall the introduction of evil. So those were the, that's the Noahic Bible that all the, every member of the human race had, every people's group had, and proceeded to suppress it, Romans chapter 1. And so, therefore, God did something that has offended men ever since. And it's this offense that in our day of political correctness, uh, is reaping a harvest of hatred against the gospel of Jesus Christ because God, at the call of Abraham, decided not to reveal himself equally to all people groups and all cultures. So That means immediately there's no such thing as a democratic structure spiritually in history because there are no votes on God's plan outside of those whom he has elected. God has chosen to play favorites in history, and this terribly offends the modern democratic mind. Terribly offends it. And yet the whole tenor from Genesis chapter 12 on through the rest of the Bible is that God plays favorites. Not that these people are more meritorious than anyone else, it's just that he has the right to play favorites. Hey, it's his history, not ours. If he wants to do it that way, that's his prerogative. He doesn't ask for our opinion, doesn't ask for a vote, doesn't go to Congress, doesn't go for an election. Never could count the vote if he did. So we have the call of Abraham, the the election, justification, and faith. It's an excellent picture of election, It's a picture of the fact that God can't enter into a contract. Remember, that's the contract. I'm reviewing all this because it comes up in the New Testament. God cannot enter, a holy God cannot enter into a contract with sinful men unless what happens? The other party out there has to be justified, has to be declared righteous. So that means that when the contract was installed in Abraham's day, there had to be justification. That's the linkage. All this is linked together. And of course, the point was that the justification had to come about in such a way that it wasn't meritoriously earned by Abraham, and that's the issue of faith. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, Saul, also walking in it. The Exodus, which we'll be talking about tonight, was the uh, second great event in biblical history that shows judgment salvation. And it shows, beyond the flood, it shows the importance of blood atonement and salvation. Another way to think about the Exodus, let your imagination float a little bit, is it's the only time where a people received freedom without armed force. This was the equivalent of a revolution, and yet there was no army involved. Isn't that remarkable? An entire nation was delivered from oppression without ever firing a shot. They had no army. Stand still and you will see the salvation of the Lord. So it was one of the great miracles of history that a revolutionary act occurred without a revolutionary violence of an army. course, there's violence, it's God's violence. Mount Sinai, Revelation, How does, what does the King of Kings want his people whom he redeemed here, how does he want them to walk? Now, if people could just grasp the fact that the Exodus occurs before the Sinai, it would solve a lot of problems in our evangelical circles. Because it clearly shows you that the Lordship of Jehovah follows salvation and is not included in the salvation in the sense of all the details. Obviously, the Lord is God. But the point here is, the exodus, he had to practically pry loose the people out of Egypt. Didn't even want to leave Egypt. So think about the whole tenor there. They were saved, literally dragged out of the country, kicking and screaming, fussing at Moses because the desert didn't have pretty flowers in it. And that's the group that God saved. Then he gets them out in the desert, and then he puts the fear of God in them. But that happens after their salvation. Well, how did he put the fear of God in him? By talking loud so that two million people could hear him speaking from the mountain. I think that would tend to be impressive. And then he told the people he wanted to conquest, the conquest and settlement. And this is the the thing where you say the disruptive kingdom, because everywhere from this point on in history, God acts. He acts to disrupt pagan structures. There's always going to be tension there. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ warns us, don't love even your own family more than me, because there's going to be disruptions, and your loyalty has to be to me, he says. And then, of course, the rise and reign of David, and all this is a good example of sanctification. So that's where we went halfway through the Old Testament. And following that, God warned the people, and next week we'll deal with something that is applied from this, uh, the king's discipline. After the king constructed the kingdom in the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament is devoted to the king's rule. And the king's rule is one of discipline. So, if you're offended politically, by God playing favorites, this is the other side of the coin. Yeah, he plays favorites, but he also holds his own people to a higher standard. And he runs his show with his authority and his righteousness and justice. And so we went through Solomon, we saw the kingdom was divided, north and south, the kingdom's in decline, the exile happened in 586, that lasted 70 years, And then we have this partial restoration prior to the Lord Jesus Christ coming. Then last year, of course, we worked through the life of Christ and we dealt with the four great events in His life. And each one of these shows, again, a basic Bible doctrine. Uh, We color-coded these, by the way. These are the colors from the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And uh, what's interesting is, if you think about the modern flag of Israel, it's two of those four colors on the flag, and two are missing. And it's remarkable that the very colors of the nation Israel's flag shows you something about the state of that nation today. Blue, the picture of heaven, and white, the picture of righteousness, That's the standards, and yet isn't it interesting that Israel knows nothing of the red, which would be the blood atonement, and the purple, which is the sign of the king. Um, But these four events, Christ's birth, his life, his death, and resurrection, are the culmination of the Old Testament view to the Messiah. So we have the birth of Christ, which protects the idea of creator and creature, the king as creator and creature, the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ is both perfect God and perfect man, united, without confusion, in one person forever. His life, this is going to become important. We're going to come back to this. These were not easy. If you remember, we had a lot of Q&A. Uh, discussions about kenosis, impeccability, and infallibility. And we're going to come back to that because if we're going to start talking in the New Testament about the life of Christ in the believer, now we've got a little problem here. Because now we've got to start working with this. Then we dealt with the death of Christ, substitutionary blood atonement, and his great finished work there, and the resurrection, which is the ultimate destiny of the creation. So then we have come, this year, uh, we have start, taken up the first event on the origin of the church, and that first event on the origin of the church, the, the prelude to it, the uh, necessary, uh, the necessary uh, act that precedes the origin of the church, was the ascension and session of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ goes to heaven, and he sits at the Father's right hand this is a momentous time, and it's not emphasized, in my opinion, enough in our Bible-believing circles. Because at this point, for the first time in history, a member of the human race is literally at the helm of the universe. First time it's ever happened. And it means that in the hierarchy of rank, the Lord Jesus Christ outranks all angels, good and bad. So all of the angels are now outranked by this member of the human race who successfully made it from the domain down here because remember from Psalm 8, Psalm 8 says you've created man what a little lower than the angels. So Jesus Christ went from status lower than angels to status higher than angels. And he did so because he perfectly obeyed the Father's will. And because he perfectly obeyed the Father's will, perfectly qualified for the cross, completed all of his assignments, he became the new Adam that reigns. So that's the basis. And when Jesus Christ sat down at the Father's right hand, he did something. So now that gets us to our second event that we're working on now, and that is Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost could not happen until... First, the Lord Jesus Christ was seated at the Father's right hand. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who intercedes, asks the Father, and the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And that becomes the origin of the church of Jesus Christ. There's no church in the Old Testament. This is where everything begins with the church on that day. What confuses people is that when you read the book of Acts, it's not obvious that the church begins on the day of Pentecost. Peter evidently doesn't know it's happened. The apostles don't know it's happened. And only gradually, by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, be, oh yeah, something new has happened. So this is not something that just, it, it would happened instantaneously on the day of Pentecost. The problem was it wasn't realized. And that's where Acts gets very complicated. Acts is actually a very difficult book because it's not a theological exposition. It's an analysis of history from the standpoint of a mature believer in Jesus Christ, looking back at that history. So here's the diagram, and I'll I'll try to bring in another slide next week, but if you want a diagram acts, here's a way to looking at it. Take a long rectangle and draw a diagonal from one corner to the other. The theme that predominates in the first part of the book of Acts is the kingdom. The theme that emerges as you go through the book of Acts is the church. So heavy on in the early chapters, it's always kingdom, it's Israel, it's everything, the church is there, but it's not even spoken of as some separate entity. But by the time you come to the end of Acts, the church has emerged, it's become something separate from the nation Israel, and then comes the question, well, when did this all start? And the answer is, it all started in Pentecost, but we didn't really realize that what had happened then. So Acts is a book of transition. And what that means is, every time you get an event like Acts chapter 2, which we'll look at tonight, it's a mixture of things that are going on there. And this is why it is very demanding on an accurate exegesis of the text to retrieve the pieces because the pieces are all mixed together. So that's what we want to look at. And so on our notes in page 24, we're looking at the earthly origin of the church. And we're going to spend some time on what was observed in Pentecost. So if you turn to Acts 2, well, let's go to Acts chapter 1 first. We we'd spent some time on this before, but it's been three or four weeks, so let's, again, can't waste too much time here reviewing. In Acts chapter 1, Luke records Jesus as um, presenting himself, verse 3, alive, for a period of 40 days. Okay. Now notice, Pentecost is going to come at 50 days. So 10 more days left here. For 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, and gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Now we're going to see how that little phrase, not to leave Jerusalem, has led to a misinterpretation. If you'll hold the place here and look over the next chapter. um, Well, let's see. Yeah, chapter 2, verse 1, basically shows the idea. Um, They were all together in one place. Wouldn't have been together in one place if in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he hadn't told them to stay in Jerusalem. And there's a reason the Lord had for gathering them in that one place. So, time wise, we have the resurrection of Christ, the cross, the resurrection, and we have 40 days, and then he's going to ascend. Then we're going to have a 10 day period here, and something else is going to descend. All this is preparatory. He says in verses five and six, in verse five, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days now. So in verse two, two of the three baptisms that John the Baptist mentioned are Jesus mentions. So let's talk about John the Baptist just a moment. John the Baptist had three baptisms. One was a water baptism which he administered to Jewish people who were trusting in the Messiah that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And if they would trust and accept Jesus as the Messiah, John would then agree to water baptize them. And this was offensive, probably, to Jewish people because traditionally the only people who ever got baptized were Gentiles coming into the Jewish community from outside of that community. Well, here, within the community of, of Judaism, you're having somebody demand water baptism. But it's a water baptism based on faith in Jesus Christ. Then the next baptism he talks about, the Messiah will come and he will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. And he clarifies those two baptisms, which, by the way, are dry. There's one wet baptism here and two dry. Those two baptisms... He says, and he expounds it with the illustration of a harvesting on the farm, of shoveling grain and pushing it up in the air, and he says he shall shall win on He shall separate the wheat from the chaff and burn the chaff with fire. So John is obviously saying that spirit baptism comes upon those who are saved. Fire baptism is going to come upon those who reject Jesus Christ. So now we have the three baptisms. Well, when John in Acts chapter one, verse five, Jesus says, Yes, John baptized with water. There's the wet one. There's the water baptism. And he is and then he says, uh, You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he talks about baptism number two. And notice he does not talk about baptism number three. And this is part of the strange structure that you get into with the New Testament. Once again, remember. From the Old Testament perspective, the first and second advents of Christ are like this. There are two mountains, one behind the other. And there's no clear estimation of what separates it because you don't see this angle. All you see is this angle here. So the first and second advents are coalesced in prophecy after prophecy. What we find out is that the first and second advents actually are two different events, the two advents. It's not clear they're two different advents in the, in the lot of the prophecy. But we find this out. How do we find this out? Let's think about it. Why do we now... Why is Christ's career split in half? Well, the answer is because Israel rejected when he first came. So you have a rejection on the part of the custodian-elect nation against the Messiah which now precipitates this inter-advent period. So now what has to happen in the book of Acts is everybody has to readjust to this thing. And that's part of the difficulty in interpreting this book correctly, is now you've got this whole new inter-advent age and you've got the Christ coming and then you've got him coming again. You've got the baptism of the Spirit associated with this, that's just about ready to happen, and then you've got the baptism of fire, which is his judgment when he comes again. So now those two are pulled apart. So Jesus here is talking about baptism number one and baptism number two, these two. John did the number one, I'm going to do number two, he says. So therefore, in verse six, that precipitates the next question that would have been on the mind of a loyal Jew. Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, why did the kingdom have to be restored? Well, let's go back in Old Testament history. Remember we said, out in the Old Testament, we show this slide. And that was that the golden era of Solomon, then we have the exile, and we have a partial restoration. The Shekinah glory left the temple, back here. And at that point, the theocratic kingdom was suspended. So the disciples knew this, Jesus knew this, the Jewish community knew this, so the question in verse 6 would have been understood by a biblically literate Jew. It was a very specific question. Will you bring into existence historically, once again, the theocratic kingdom, and in particular, the kingdom that the prophets promised? So you have all the Old Testament, including John the Baptist, by the way, saying this, the kingdom of God is near. Remember that? The kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Now, he's not talking... We like to read that because we're all Gentile pagans and Greeks and so on. We we think of, oh, that's just spiritual. It wasn't just spiritual. The kingdom of God that those people were looking for was political. Yes, it was spiritual, but it was spiritual and physical and political and had revolutionary implications as far as the Roman Empire was concerned. And that's what they were looking for. But the problem is the kingdom of God can't come if you're going to reject hope. The king. The king is not going to bring in his kingdom if you don't want the kingdom. If you don't want the king, you don't want the kingdom. But you see, that's the old problem. We want the blessing, we don't want the blessor. And that's the theology of the New Testament. Negative volition toward the king, too bad guys, then you're not going to get the kingdom. You get the king, we'll get the kingdom. No king, no kingdom. So the king becomes the issue in the kingdom issue. It's not a kingdom issue, ultimately. It's a king issue. Is the nation going to accept Christ as king? So they rejected, and at this point the disciples are puzzled, because here Jesus is talking about the baptism of the Spirit, which would have been associated with the kingdom, because John the Baptist preached the baptism of the Spirit as something that would precede the coming of the kingdom of God. Well, if Jesus in verse 5 promises that not many days hence will the spirit baptism come, then the next question is, well, then not many days hence the kingdom must come. Well, now, at this point, verse 7 is a monkey wrench. Because this is the first time in history, a Bible, where... The spirit baptism that has always been associated with the coming of the kingdom is now apparently split off from the kingdom itself. Now here we go again. We're taking apart things that looked like in the Old Testament they were together. So he says to J- Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he, he says, you will receive the Holy Spirit that shall come to you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, and so forth and so forth. But he doesn't really answer whether the kingdom is going to come. And we want to remember this, because in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, the kingdom issue comes up again, it comes up two more times. So that's the prelude for what we're going to do now. Now we're going to move on to Acts chapter 2. And what we do want to do in Acts chapter 2 is observe. Tonight we're on observation, then next week we're going to be on the interpretation that the New Testament gives to this event. But we want to look at the event carefully first, then we'll worry about the interpretation. Page 27 is where we are in the notes, but right now. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, and the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now, all, we have to watch this one, too. All is defined in chapter 1, somewhere, if I can see, yes, verse 15, to be 120 people. So now we know what all is. All equals 120. There is some question in the next few verses whether the actors that are running here are actually the 120 or they're just the 11, the disciples of the 11 apostles. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as of fire, notice the, the Greek construction is quite clear it's not tongues of fire it is tongues that had the appearance of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit was giving them utterance so the question now is what what's happened here there are three miracles that are occurred in these verses. Let's list them. Miracle number one is this rushing wind. Now notice, it was a noise like a wind, but not a wind. If there had been a wind, it might have blown the house down. But now we have the sound and noise of a wind. So now one of the senses is hearing. Notice the empirical evidence hearing, sound, acoustic. There is a noise that happens here. Now, without going any further, without speculating, without talking about interpretation, we've covered this enough so that most of you ought to be able to think in the recesses of your mind what is wind associated with in the Bible, in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for wind, spirit. Wind and spirit, it's the same now. So where the Holy Spirit in the creation narrative does his thing, after the flood, what happened? A little text there, right after the flood of Noah, there was a mighty wind that blew. So wherever the Holy Spirit works, he is analogous to wind. Remember the dialogue of Jesus with Nicodemus and Nicodemus was asking, well, how can these things be? And he says, it's like the wind. You can hear it and see it, but you can't really know where it's going. Ask me, I'm a meteorologist. Hearing is associated with a noise and the noise has a particular characteristic that it mimics or is analogous to wind. And it turns out that wind is analogous in the scriptures to spirit. So this language has to be watched here. Learn to read scripture carefully. Can't interpret unless we first observe. And we want to observe the text. Okay, that's miracle number one. Never saw this before. Whether the noise was... uh, Uh, Audible outside in the street, we don't know. But clearly, all of those that were in one place filled the whole house where they were sitting. And and by the way, that's why in verse two and subsequent verses, there is a debate whether all is 120 or whether it's 11. And we don't have time to go into all the details for that one. But that's why one of the debates, how could you get 120 people in this room? And then later on, it's, it's like it's a representation but that's that's neither here nor there right now. The next miracle is in verse 3, where another phenomena, this is sight. Sight. And they see something. And whatever this thing is, it appeared as tongues as of fire, and the idea is, you know, flame is just hot gas, and gas is air, it's moving. So there again you see the association with air and wind and so forth. Whatever this was, we might today, instead of speaking of it as tongues as a fire, we might speak of it as uh, glowing charges, electrical charges, static electrical charge. So it appears to have some electrical, fiery visibility to it. And this is sight and it's some sort of energy, it's some sort of form of energy, that's visible. Some radiative energy. And whatever it is, the analogy as of, of hot gas, moves around and distributes this jumping flame. It distributes themselves and then it does a strange thing. You have, whether it's 120, eleven people here, this, whatever this energy form is, here are these guys sitting in the room and this energy comes on every one of them. And it wasn't like it would it just cascaded through the room. It was aimed. The text emphasizes it came upon them like it's, 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 it's seeking them out. So what this is a really a strange thing. So now we have a noise and we have sight energy. Now, the third miracle is verse 4. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Now, the word tongues means languages. I'm going to, this has caused a big debate uh, in, in church circles over these languages. Now, even the, the, the Pentecostals uh, people will have to agree that in this verse is talking about known human Languages. This is not gobbledygook, this is not ecstasy, this is known human languages, as you can tell by the context. Because verse 5 says what, what went on. Now we're going to look at the response from verses 5 to 13, because this response tells us something else that's interesting. And if we study this response, we will understand passages like 1 Corinthians 14. So I want to pay attention to some details in this passage. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. The word for living here could be dwelling, so forth. Now, uh, we may or may not get time tonight to go into why from every nation they were here. But one of the reasons was because this is the Feast of Pentecost. And these are Diaspora Jews. Now, there are two kinds of Jews, still are. The Diaspora Jew and the Palestinian Jew. Both groups are in this text. The Palestinian Jews are divided in New Testament times into two groups, the Galileans, and those who are around the Judeans. The Judeans looked upon themselves as upper class. The Galileans were low class. Not that they personally had any character, it was just that these people were the urban people, these people were the rural people. And uh, the rivalry was the same there as it always is, I guess. Um, and they, they had this Right. One of, the, one of the things was that, of course, education predominated in Jerusalem. Judeans felt they were better educated. They spoke a better Hebrew. Uh, the Galileans had an accent. Remember where that played a role? The girl, Peter, I can tell you're a Galilean. She knew he was a Galilean because of the way he spoke. So they had kind of a slang, kind of a dialect that was identifiable. So now we have the Diaspora Jews, the Palestinian Jews. What verse 5 is saying is the Diaspora Jews are now visiting Jerusalem because they had come there to visit for the holiday. Pentecost was a holiday. And so they went back, these, these diaspora Jews. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were, be- were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed. And they said, why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? See, they recognized. Apparently, looked different too. And that the disciples weren't really the guys that you normally see in Jerusalem. These are these guys up north. There, they're the people from the mountains, Galileans. And how is it that we each here? Now look at this. Look at this construction. Look what it's saying. How is it? that we each hear them in our own language. And how is the word tongue or language qualified in verse 8 to dogmatically assert that it's known human languages? It says, to which we were born, our native dialect. So not only did they hear it in languages, it was the right local dialect. And these diaspora Jews are sitting there listening to this, and all of a sudden, these people who they would consider uneducated—I mean, you wouldn't want to go to some place that you would think was just, you know, people weren't weren't that educated. I mean, think of Appalachia, someplace. What would you think if you went up into Appalachia and uh, all of a sudden heard people speaking classical English or German or Latin? I mean, it can kind of get your attention a little bit. And that's that's what's going on here. These people are the number, miracle number three, besides the audible, besides the visual, is the mental. They are understanding content in their own dialect. This is remarkable. And then, if that isn't enough, In verse 9, 10, and 11, we have 11 different regions of the world that these people came from. Showing that the dialects were from areas that the Galilean Jews would never have gone to. Peter didn't travel out in this area. Andrew didn't. Matthew didn't. These guys weren't travelers. How did they be able to speak in all of these dialects? Miracle number three says in verse 11, we hear them in our own languages speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So, it's clear that something strange is happening here, something that was not mentioned earlier, apparently, in the Old Testament. And Peter's going to get up shortly and he's going to explain this whole thing. Now, what happens is in verse 12 and 13, people read that and say, see, it wasn't real human languages. It was just some ecstasy language, some heavenly language. And look at the proof is, in verse 12 and 13, they all continued amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying they're full of wine. Ah, but in verse 13, what is the subject of the verb mocking? Others. Others. Now, what does other mean? If I say there's a group here and there's an other group, I don't mean the same group, do I? So this is the second group, and it's the second group of people who were mocking, saying they're full of sweet wine. I would suggest that the others were fellow Palestinians who were also there in Jerusalem. The people who were from foreign countries heard the message in their own language. The guys who were native to Jerusalem, the native Palestinian Jews, they wouldn't have clicked with them. That's all it sounds like to me. What's the matter with these guys? So you're getting two different reports of the same miracle because you've got two different groups from two different backgrounds that are interpreting them two different ways. This is not an argument then for the fact that these are some sort of an ecstatic language it sounded like drunken mumbling because they couldn't understand the language in the first place. Now what we want to do is we want to say a few words about the Pentecost thing. And we're going to look, if you look in the notes, I've summarized it pretty well in the notes, so uh, if you'll turn to page 28, uh, I want to introduce this calendar issue. This is sort of a neat little background to this Acts issue. Pentecost is part of Israel's calendar. Now, the calendar problem is one of those cases where people look at this, they don't think about it, and they miss a great glorification fact for God. The only supernaturally designed calendar in the world was that of Israel's. She had a supernaturally designed national anthem that portrayed not just her past history like our national anthem that speaks of Fort McHenry, but their national anthem spoke of their future national history as well as their past national history. Now, their calendar did the same thing. Let's break it down. The first paragraph of page 28, up at the top, I give you the Old Testament references, which we won't go there tonight. We don't have time to go there tonight. But we want to at least show what the seven parts of the Old Testament Jewish calendar were like. Part number one. Well, let's group the first four, and then we'll group the last three. There's four events... That happened in the spring calendar of the nation Israel. The first one was Passover. We all know that Passover looked at Exodus, looked at a historic fact. Okay? Now watch something. We're gonna make a list here. I'm gonna write this all down, piece of paper. And by writing it down carefully, we're going to discover something about the structure of this calendar. The next one, the next feast, is the Feast of First Fruits. Oh, and Leavened Bread, excuse me. Now, the problem is... What did the feast of unleavened bread refer to? Well, you know, it was part unleavened bread was part of the Passover. It was part of the fact that when they left Egypt, the culture of Egypt. And the new culture that God was to create in his counterculture nation Israel, in this elect nation. Remember why? Disruptive kingdom. What was the purpose of Israel in history? To negate and overcome the paganization of Noahic civilization. So, the, um, this feast of unleavened bread spoke of a separation, that God would create another counterculture. The third thing was the Day of First Fruits. Now, the Day of First Fruits was when they took the first harvest and they would go out in the field and get this barley uh, thing together and they would not bake it or harvest it or cook it or anything else. They would just use the raw, uncooked sheaf. And it appears that this first fruits was a thanksgiving to God because He had blessed them. After all, what drove the economy of the nation Israel? Agriculture. So this is the first blessing they're getting as a nation. And they give thanks. This is the first fruits. Then, 50 days later, comes Pentecost. Now the question. Is that what is Pentecost? It is sometimes in the Bible also called first fruits, so you have to be careful of the vocabulary. You get mixed up sometimes. The day of first fruits commemorates the first part of the harvest. Pentecost is the end of the harvest, end of the spring cycle. And the issue at Pentecost was a loaf of bread. Now, think about what bread is. Bread is the harvest used, the harvest uh, enjoyed, the harvest that blesses and and is usable for man. What is significant about these last two feasts is that they cut right across paganism. Let's let's take a little visit and go outside of Israel for a moment in the Old Testament to get a flavor for for the contrast of this calendar. If you and I were to stroll through a village in Canaan prior to the conquest and we were strolling through in the time of the spring harbor, what do you suppose we would see? The fertility cults. I mean, they go out there and they copulate in the middle of the field like dogs. Now, what were they doing? Because in their minds, fertility of that field was part and parcel of the fertility of the human body, the fertility of the animals, the fertility of the ground. It was all one cosmos. Remember we said continuity of being. It was a mechanism that could be manipulated by ritual. So we would have these orgies out in the fields. Now we, we think of it more as a sort of pornographic thing, but in their minds it was far deeper than just uh, pornography. In their eyes, it was that you are stimulating the fertility forces in nature. See, it's like a mechanism, more than it's a personal relationship with a deity who created us and to whom we give thanks. So, these last two events in the spring cycle forced the Jew to change his whole mind about economic blessing in his life and to go back and thank the fact that it's not your devices, it's not your gimmicks, it's not your business plans, it's not your devices and schemes that bring about prosperity. It is God that brings about the prosperity, and it is to Him that we must give thanks. And that's the lesson paganism never learned, never did learn, and still hasn't learned. So here we go Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. Now, in the fall cycle, they had three things. They had this trumpets thing. Then they had Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then they had the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this coincided with the fall agriculture. The trumpets which occurs around our Labor Day, would be an announcement of the fall cycle beginning. See, there's a break between the spring and fall cycle. Then there would be the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and in this Day of Atonement, there would be confession of sin. And the emphasis was on cleanliness, restoration, confessing of sin, looking to God to forgive my sin and to redeem myself from sin. And then they would go to this uh, seven days living in these tabernacles. And if you go out in the, at least when I was there in Israel, you can go out in the um, Negev area, uh, tabernacles, and you can still see some tabernacles. They build them out there. It's like they camp out in these things. Well now, what's the significance of all this? Let's go through the significance. We already know Passover. Passover remembers a historic act in the past, the exodus. Unleavened bread represents the rupture between the pagan background and the redeemed, sanctified existence of Israel. First fruits and Pentecost represent their harvest and their blessings. Trumpets not really sure about that one Yom Kippur points to some sort of atonement for sin and Tabernacles points to some concept of a rest that we have the harvest complete, all the blessings are in, and now we take time to rest. Well now, what we notice if you turn to page 29, in the notes, is that event number one, now here's the real weird thing that happened in history, and it's so so spooky that you can't look at this without saying God reigns. On what day was Jesus Christ crucified? Exactly today of Passover. And you remember when I dealt with the death of Christ, There's a little problem there because he ate the Passover before, and it's because there was two calendars running side by side, and we went through all that last time. But the idea is, Jesus didn't die eight days before Passover, he didn't die 35 days after Passover, he didn't die in the fall, he didn't die in the winter, he died in the spring, and he not only died in the spring, but he died on exactly the day that the Jews left Egypt. He died on the cross on exactly the day that they put blood on the doors in Egypt. Now, how come that was timed so perfectly? Think of the centuries. We're talking, folks, 1,400 years between the Exodus, for over 1,400 years, 14 centuries plus between this day when they separated from Egypt and this day when the Messiah paid for the sins of the world. Why is it that the calendar is conservative with time? The Jewish calendar has a mystery about it. It's like it's a clock, and it ticks away, and every year it shows again the structure of history. To this day, every Jewish family is celebrating Passover on the day that the Messiah they don't believe in died for their sin. Then we come to unleavened bread, And it's interesting that unleavened bread is picked up in the New Testament. If you look at the bottom of page 29, the notes, you'll see, I quote, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, you'll see how Paul uses this. Clearly, Paul has a calendar on his mind, and he sees a fulfillment of that feast of unleavened bread. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. See, this is a passage that just, you, you just wouldn't catch unless you had the background we just gave you here tonight. He's talking in verse 6, You're boasting, Corinthians, is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our... See? There's the calendar. Christ, Our Passover has also been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast. What feast? The unleavened bread. Not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So now we learn something else. That leaven and this whole unleavened bread thing is a picture of something. In particular, it's a picture of the new life in Jesus Christ. The utter separation from the life of the flesh to the life of Christ. Now, another thing. On what day did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Exactly the day of first fruits. Three days later. How did that happen? Was there a deal cooked up between... Pilate and the priests, they had no control of the resurrection. Only one person had control of the resurrection, or two, God the Father and God the Son. And isn't it striking that they chose to pull off the resurrection in synchronization with the Jewish calendar? Does that tell us something about the importance of the Jewish calendar? I think so. Now, we move finally to the fourth one in the spring series, which is Pentecost. And what happens exactly on the day of Pentecost? Holy Spirit comes. He doesn't come on Pentecost because the disciples sat there and tarried and agonized for the Holy Spirit to come. What Jesus said was, stay in Jerusalem. And that's what it meant. I want you all here, and you just hang out for a while, and and something's going to happen. And something did happen to the very day of that Jewish calendar. Now, our time is up tonight, but notice something that we've noticed about the structure here. The rest of the New Testament knows nothing about the fulfillment of the fall cycle. Not a thing. Not a thing. What does this suggest? This is the same bifurcation that's going on between the first advent and the second advent. And the fall calendar is yet to be fulfilled. Something's going to happen in the future that's going to be going to fulfill feast the trumpets here. We don't know what it is. Yom Kippur, you know what one of the scriptures that Jews quote or used to? don't know whether they do now or not, but you know one of the Old Testament scriptures in Yom Kippur that's used? Isaiah 53. Oh, what is Isaiah 53 talking about? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So this might hint that in the future the nation Israel will come together. It will be in the fall and it will be exactly on the day of Yom Kippur that they will recognize, Oh, Jesus is our Messiah. We screwed up. He really was the Messiah after all. And shortly thereafter, what do you suppose is going to answer to the tabernacle rest? The beginning of the millennial kingdom and the reign of Christ. He's going to come when he said, as he said in book in the the Gospels, I will not come into this city again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And when will they do that? Yom Kippur. They will say, blessed is he that comes. We now understand that Jesus after all was the Messiah and boom, there it is. Because Israel still acts as the controller of history. She still acts as God's time clock in history. And she still is the one who alone can bring peace to the world. What is preventing peace in the world is Israel's refusal to accept Jesus Christ. And if the day proof of it is, once she realizes who Jesus is, the millennium comes very rapidly, very quickly, and world peace is established. Okay, well, that's uh, as far as the calendar goes, and next week we'll deal more now with the interpretation of this Pentecost phenomenon. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you for your faithfulness down through history, and we thank you, as we have seen tonight from the calendar, how you are so precise, how you have directed history that seems so often to be so chaotic, so mixed up, so hopelessly messed. And as we look at the details in our lives, and the interruptions, and the surprises, and the change of paces, and all of a sudden the new events, and the catastrophes that happen, we thank you that above all the chaos, there's a clock that's going. That you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you work all things after the counsel of your purpose. That you have even broadcast and published the outline of history. And it will come to pass. And we thank you that we do not walk around on a floating iceberg. We do not walk around in chaos. It may appear to us, but Father, give us the eyes of faith, for we walk not by sight, but we walk by faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. And um, so, George, do you have any questions? <laughs> Got to get something started here, George. <laughs> Debbie? Because <laughs> if you don't have any questions, I don't have any questions. Ah, <laughs> uh, good. Uh, okay. You were saying about what salvation is. Mm hmm. Yeah, I I someone even okay. someone especially who has grown up fuzzy, you know, like you know, to be a Christian means you do good works and you do good things, and you believe in Jesus, you know, and you might do some traditional things. But just a, a simple example. Well years ago Bill Bright and Campus we say, put together his four spiritual laws and I Um, I differ with the clarity, because I was led to the Lord through those, but it was because the Holy Spirit overrode some of the sloppiness in them. But in behalf of Bill, I would say that there are four basic truths that uh, that compose the Gospel. The question is, what is the Gospel? And um, the first first truth that has got to click with a non-Christian is who the God of the Bible is. Um, If if that's not clear, you can sit here and yak-yak forever and never get anywhere because if we don't understand that God is sovereign, He is the Creator, He is the Holy One, He is not going to compromise His holiness, that has got to be clear. And that's why there's biblical stories with hundreds and hundreds of illustrations uh, I think it's interesting if you see how Paul preached the gospel in Acts 14 and 17 where he was talking to a pagan group. Uh, you notice in there what he did. He quoted uh, Exodus 2011, God created heavens and the earth and all things that are in them. And people today in evangelical circles get all kinds of ants about this. They're, oh, well, we don't want to bring up creation and all the rest of it because that gets us off on a side tangent. Well, I'm sorry but if you don't bring it up, you don't have to create a creature distinction established. And yeah, yeah, you run a risk of, oh gosh, now we've got to talk about evolution, but maybe not. You know, maybe the, maybe the person, because um, it's personal variable, uh, they may have still a residue of the Christian belief system floating around somewhere in their soul so that it, the created creature distinction is sort of intuitive to them and you won't have to fight that battle, but I'm afraid that those people are few and far between today. Um, God is looked upon as a process, or He's some sort of cartoon character, old man in the sky thing. And uh, uh, I think of the four things I'm going to say, the first one is the hardest, because that's where the grease hits. People will use the oh, I believe in God. Well, tell me about it. And I think that it behooves us in conversation to ask the other person, ask the non-christian, you believe in God, would you you know, how to explain it? Because when you ask the question, it's not threatening to them. Uh, you're not trying to, quote, cram something down their throat. You're just trying to find out what it is. What you're really trying to do is get them to think. Turn on this thing, you know? So it's, find the on switch, because we got to talk. And so the first major thing is that God is our creator. It is to Him that we are ultimately responsible for, and it is He that lays the standards of right and wrong. It is His standards of justice, not man's standard of justice. So that all has to be clarified. The next thing that has to be clarified is that we fall short of that glory, Romans 3.23. That we fall short of the glory of God and... Some more than others, maybe, but the point is, it doesn't make any difference because we're all in the same boat. Well, if that's done properly, that gets rid of the problem, oh, yes, I'm a self-righteous religious person. No, uh, I deserve hell like anybody else. And if the guy's giving you a hard time, say, you know, I deserve hell like you do. Uh, Say it like that. That'd get their attention. Um, so, But you say it so that it doesn't come off like you're some self-righteous person. You put yourself on the same level. Uh, so that has to be clarified, that we have sinned. It's not that we have uh, existential vacuum in our heart, which we do, but that's not what condemns us. What condemns us is that we have sinned and gone our own way, and we're stubborn about it, we're arrogant, and we want the last and final say. So that's got to be clarified. And the third thing is that the only way that the sinner can come to a holy God is for the holy God to come down to me and give me a way of escape. It's got to be from the God side down, not from the human side up. And that gets rid of all this human merit business. It's got to be God calls to you and God calls to me through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Period. Period. Because if that isn't clear, then you're going to have some, like Islam believes. I mean, oh, yeah, we believe in God of the Bible. We believe man is a sinner. But we believe that Allah uh, kind of forgives you if the balances are right. Well, then you've got God arbitrarily forgiving sin. where does this come from? How can God arbitrarily forgive sin without compromising his righteousness? See, that's the beauty of the cross. There is no compromise of God's righteousness because He exercised it in His Son. It's substitutionary. But then, again, maybe you have to discuss the picture of the Lamb in the Old Testament. So that they gosh, that's slaughterhouse religion. That's right, it is. It's slaughterhouse religion. Well, that's offensive. That's right, it is offensive. It must have been very offensive to sit there and watch a little animal get its throat slit and bleed all over the floor because you sinned. Look what you did to the animal there. That was great, great accomplishment. And, and have to sit there and watch it. And so the third thing that formulates the four points of the gospel is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We haven't talked about church, we haven't talked about baptism, we haven't talked about your good works, and all the rest of it. And the fact is that that is a free gift. Salvation is a gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, you can use an analogy of a gift. Somebody offers you a gift and you try to pay for it. How do you feel about that? Well, I don't know. I'd I'd be insulted if I tried to give something, and somebody tried to give me money for it. That's right. Well, how do you think God feels? God gives us, offers us a gift of the death of his son, and we're turning around trying to say, Oh, God, would you accept a few little, let me give you a tip along with it. And that's what human merit looks like. So, the third thing is, you have got to replace every. time slap the wrist as many times as it reaches for the cookie jar, uh, to get rid of the idea that I got human merit because my dad was a Christian, my mom was a godly prayer lady, or uh, I was born in America, or all the other excuses that are given. And um, I, I, you know, my great-grandparents were part of the first XYZ church, and Aunt Tilda was, and so I'm in it too. And that's my claim on heaven. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. And uh, a question to raise, and it's, it's been raised by soul winners over the centuries, and I think it's a good question. If you were to die tonight, are you sure that you'd be uh, admitted to heaven? Are you sure of that? Well, not really. Hope so. Well, then you know they didn't, they're not clear in the gospel. See, that's a good, good telltale question to ask. If they can't give you a yes to that question, then they've got a problem. They may be saved, but probably not if they can't answer that question clearly to you. So, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Do you know that? On what basis? You know, three or four ways of asking the question. And the fourth point is that this can be accepted by faith in Christ alone and nothing else. Faith alone in Christ alone, period. And that doesn't mean baptism, and it doesn't mean joining a church, and it doesn't mean doing this, or it doesn't mean doing that, and it doesn't mean vowing to God, doesn't mean promising God something, it doesn't even mean inviting Christ into your heart, that's Revelation 3.20, and it's not talking about salvation, Revelation 3.20, that's the verse I was led to the Lord on, but the Holy Spirit overrode the sloppiness in that presentation. That's, I mean, you know, people get saved that way, but that's not an excuse to be sloppy. Um, the, the, the Gospel message is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the only object of the faith. No merit, no church attendance, no vows to God, no something else. And if you say me, God, I'll be a good boy the rest of my life. No! Nah. You can't value being a your You're You're be a good boy the rest of your life. You're So You're not going to be a good boy the rest of your life. You're going to trust the Lord, period. And He's the good boy, not you. Yeah. Not just that you believe that he was a man. But... Exactly. Because if you believe that Jesus is just a man or he's an honorable person and he's a great guy, uh, that doesn't show that you recognize his whole purpose for coming to this planet. His whole purpose was to come, to the Lamb of God does what to the sins of the world? The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And if you can't see that about the Lord Jesus, then you still haven't seen him right. That's what he came to do. That's his job. And it's not honoring Jesus to yak yak, oh, I think he's a great guy and all the rest of it. Well, I mean, can you imagine somebody saying that to Jesus? I mean, you know, put yourself in Jesus' position for a moment. I mean, you you took upon yourself on the cross, hell, and this person thinks you're a great person. I mean, doesn't that sound trivial? So so that's the. you have to make sure that people understand the basis for salvation. It is the finished work of Christ alone. It is by faith in Him alone. And all the rest of this stuff is, is, gets smeary. One of the things that we we're facing today is we went through some Reformed theology here, and remember one of the things that the, 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 they try to say is well, you are maybe not sure that you're the, the elect and you can't tell whether you really got saving faith or not. Well, if I can't tell I got saving faith, then I can't tell I'm going to go to heaven. And I can't tell whether God's pleased with me so that I can trust him to overcome all these messes that I've got in my life. So I've got to have the assurance at the front end, not at the tail end. And, and that's the battle we face today is to get a clear gospel presentation. One of the things where I went that February, uh, the, three weeks ago, I went to a pastor's conference in Duluth, 18 below zero. I was like going to Florida for the summer. And so I get down, up in this place, it's, it's in, interesting, it's dry cold, so it's not like this bitter cold we get. Um, but in, your breath does interesting things at 18 below zero. But um, But the point is that there were some wonderful pastors there and what I found fascinating about this church, they had one of the most clear gospel tracks I've ever seen. I have ever seen. It's about a 26 page gospel track and I've already given it to the elders here to see if we can get it on our table. But the guy spent five or six years writing this track. He tested it, and tested it, you know, do you get the point, do you get the point. Had to put cartoons in there to get the point across. And then he finally, at the end, he had to clarify what repentance was because, see, the word repentance has come to mean or came to mean in the 20s, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Uh, repent of your sins. You'll often hear that, repent of your sins. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a sense, of course, involved in that, but actually repentance for your sins really probably doesn't happen until after you're born again and you begin to sin and you really realize that the ugliness of it but when you're first saved, you know, you're kind of like a drunk walking out of the bar. Uh, you do not really too aware of things. And what the repentance that Paul is talking about in Acts 17 isn't, if you watch, it isn't about repenting from your sins. It's repenting for your concept of God. So he gets back to the first thing, first of the four. What does he say? Turn from these vanities to what? to the living God who created the heavens and the earth. So in context, that repentance means change your whole way of thinking. It gets back to that, that uh, concept I've, I've used about the interior decorator. You ask an interior decorator to show up to your house and he comes in with a bulldozer and tears the whole house apart and rebuilds it. That's the concept of repentance that the Bible has. So this guy tries that and it's got a neat dedication of a John Walverd said it's one of the f- finest tracks going today. So I'm going to try to get some of those. I'll, I'll try to get some so that all you guys that come to the class have it, because I think it would be a great tool, and then you can order your own from there. But uh, it's something that has to be clarified, and I'm telling you, it's going to become increasingly more difficult to preach and share the gospel today. It's, it's hard enough in religious circles, but it's even worse in a lot of the sloppy New Age stuff that's coming in. The uh, Eastern Gu, uh where everybody talks about God and it's not our God, uh, very difficult to work with. So, great question, great question, and I will remember to try to get those. It'll probably be a couple of weeks down the road, but I, I think you all need to see that that track. Um, I guess we can go. It's our time's kind of up. And um, next week we'll work more on the language issue and the gift of tongues. Okay?